Hi, I'm Dr. Chuck Betters, and you're listening to a conversation with Bob Allums. Bob is the director of A Praying Life for See Jesus. And Bob has taught over 100 prayer seminars around the world in countries including like Morocco and Turkey, England, Spain, Australia. You know, Bob, who served in pastoral ministry for 14 years uh, before taking on this position, uh, is being asked today to step back into a frightening and painful time in his life, a period where he says he experienced the worst year of his life. So, Bob, I want to welcome you. It's great to have you with us today. Great to be with you, Chuck. Thank you. Well, Bob, before we go back into that dark period, tell us a little bit about your life today. What's going on today? Well, uh, Chuck, the uh, my ministry, as you said, is called A Praying Life, and it's rooted in the material that is now the book called A Praying Life by Paul Miller. Paul Miller is the founder of See Jesus, and he's my boss. But what I do is I go out to churches, organizations, uh, mission organizations overseas, just various audiences, and teach the seminar that's simply called A Praying Life. And uh, I also oversee several trainers who do the same thing. So we're doing these all over the world. And You'll appreciate this. They're really only for those of us who are <laughs> really bad at praying. <laughs> so, so, so for those of us who struggle with prayer and feeling, you know, just wondering, are, am I doing it right? What's wrong with me? Why is this so awkward? Why is it so hard? Uh, those kind of questions that can really uh, 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 taunt someone inside. It's interesting you say that, that people... It's for people who struggle with their prayer life. And I'm thinking back now over my nearly 50 years of ministry, I can't remember too many people who really had their prayer life together. And so you, you, so you have a big audience. It's a big audience. And, and, and you'll love this when we tell people, uh, I teach a seminar that's only for those of us who are bad at praying. <laughs> they almost always laugh. And then they ask, where do I sign? <laughs> where, where can folks get information about your ministry? Uh, they can come to our website, which is See Jesus, like you're looking at Jesus. So S-E-E, Jesus.net. And we, we do several ministries, but they'll see the A Praying Life tab, and they can come on and see all that we have to offer. Yeah, it's clear that you really do live a life with a sense of joy and purpose. And uh, But let's go back now into that dark place that led to what you call the worst year of your life. Why don't you take us on that little trip? Well, it started in the fall of 1989. And I began to be just overwhelmed with a sense of sadness, and I could not shake it for the life of me. Uh, my wife, Helen, and I had two children. Uh, ben was uh, six years old, and our daughter, Erin, was four years old. And we were living north of Atlanta, Georgia. I worked full-time for a Christian company. InterVarsity Press. I was one of the regional sales reps for IVP. And then I was also pastoring a, a small Baptist church in the area. 
So we were very busy, really, you know, a really stressful life, just trying to do it all right. That's not even to mention the stress that I put on myself, you know, very high performance stress. So I thought this sadness, this malaise of soul, if you will, was purely to being stressed. It scared me. I did not feel I could talk to people about it. You know, we, we kind of expect pastors to be pretty close to perfect, and we don't like it when they admit weaknesses or struggles they can't get through. So I kept it all inside. It was just a very dark period of the soul. And about October of that year, 1989, I noticed a sore just popped up on the left side of my mouth inside. And I didn't think much of it. I was so busy trying to perform in all these other areas that I barely noticed it. However, it got to where it was so irritated, I called a doctor about it. And I'm only 32 years old. I have no risk factors. I I was not a smoker. I didn't chew tobacco or anything like that. And so the doctor prescribed a topical ointment over the phone. And that provided great relief. That was in October. By December, it dawned on me that this sore has not gone away. In fact, it's getting worse. I connect all that with uh, the fact that Christmas was rolling around and my wife and I had decided we were not going to drive the 700 miles to our hometown where we grew up uh, for Christmas because it was just we were just too tired. Well, at the last minute, we changed our minds, and Christmas Eve, we loaded up the station wagon and drove all night to my, my side of the family, and we walked in and surprised everybody on Christmas Day, and we had a great time visiting and laughing, enjoying each other, and when all of that died down, I asked my, my dad, who was a doctor, if he would take a look at this sore in my mouth. And so we stepped back into his washroom. He shined a flashlight back there. And I should have known something was up because dad went clinical on me. He kind of quit being my dad and he became Dr. Allen's. He, he didn't say much. He was very calm. But I later found out he did not sleep that night. And the reason is the next day, he, he, he basically said, you know, I want to see if a friend of mine can look at this and evaluate this. And it turns out his friend the next day did have an opening. He had a cancellation and I got in to see him. And his, his friend was named John Harden, H-A-R-D-I-N, wonderful man. And he looked in there and, and, and gave me the diagnosis when he said, you have a rather advanced form of tongue and mouth cancer. He said, I I don't know how a young man 32 years old with no risk factors gets this, but you're going to need a series of operations. And uh, we're going to have to um, remove the tumor. You're going to have to have some reconstructive surgery because of that. You're going to need the left side of your neck, the the lymph nodes removed from the left side of your neck. We're going to need to do some reconstructive surgery for that. If you can't swallow when all this is over, and we won't know until it's all over, 
but if you can't swallow, we will need to, to put a tube into you that so you can take liquid nourishment into your stomach. And he said, um, and my guess is your public speaking days are quite possibly over. My guess is you'll be able to communicate when all this is over, but we're just going to have to wait and see. And that began the worst year of my life. Obviously, you had a lot of fear, perhaps uh, maybe some anger or disappointment when you realized when you realized well, how dire this prognosis was. Uh, how, how did you process all of that? Uh, very badly at first. Uh, it really overwhelmed me. I could not make any sense out of it. I wasn't even sure what I wanted to have happen other than to be healed. Because um, part of the healing process with all of the surgery would leave me disfigured, unable to speak very clearly. I, I wouldn't have a career anymore. And I couldn't imagine myself doing anything other than ministry. It, it just seemed like everywhere I turned was just darkness. And it was overwhelming darkness. You know, there's a lot of anger with that. What have I done? Lord, I've served you. Why now? Lord, are you asleep at the wheel? I mean, what's, what is up with all this? And so it was just constant struggle, uh, constant humiliation, constant testing of heart and soul the whole time. You went through a period of uh, depression prior to you receiving this diagnosis. Is that correct? Yes. Mm -hmm. You see any correlation between the two as you're able to look back now? Well, I, I do wonder a bit, and I'm not really a trained doctor or scientist in any way, so this is just speculation on my part. But, you know, cancer is such a challenging disease on the body itself, and it really drains you. I mean, the, the the treatments are draining, but the disease itself really takes the energy out of you. And I just wonder if I just didn't have the strength to be, uh, you know, positive or optimistic. And when you when you connect all that with a very high performance view of the Christian life, you know, hey, I've got to be a good dad. I've got to be a great husband. I've got to be a perfect pastor. You know, all these things. It just overwhelms you, and you just feel like you're you're drowning. You know, it's interesting. The other day I was reading Paul's letter to the Corinthians where he talks, he gives us this litany of his sufferings where he just walks one after, walks us through one after another of horrific things that happened to him from beatings to being left for dead to, uh, to whippings to being left out at sea. And the list is horrible. It's just a horrible list. And then at the very end of that list, he says, and then you add to all of that, all of that suffering, the daily care for the church. And that's a pastor speaking. That's a, that's a pastor's heart speaking. And the reason I asked you the question about the depression and its relationship to the cancer, uh, I'm, I'm relating to you from my own experience where one thing after another finally led to what we as a family had to experience when we lost our 16-year-old son, Mark, to a car accident. 
But there were a series of things that happened prior to that, one right after another. The last being, right before we lost Mark, was a real serious bout that I had with depression. And it seemed to me, as I look back now, I'm able to look back 25 years now and see that it, it seems as though, and, and you, you can relate to this uh, as you see fit, but it seems as though God allows us to go through periods of darkness, whatever they are, and he does it in stages where we, we learn how to handle some difficult situations today that will prepare us for even more difficult situations tomorrow. Am I speaking something that you could relate to? Yes. The challenge of ministry or really any of the caregiving callings is that you're constantly giving out passionately from your heart. And it's 24-7, especially as your ministry grows and people begin to trust you with their, their needs and their weaknesses. And pretty soon you're just spent. You don't have anything left. And, and yet you, you have, I found I had a tendency to get mad at myself that I had nothing left. And there's an argument that says depression is just anger turned inward. So I, I, I think we're really prone to it in a caregiving calling like that. Uh, I know I was, I was emerging out of that, that depression, and it was a pretty dark one. And I was beginning to see light at the end of the tunnel, feeling good about life. And I remember sitting out on, in my backyard, and I had this sense of euphoria where, God, you are really an awesome God. You do all things well. Thank you for bringing me out of that depression. Things are really good. You have blessed my socks off. I, and on and on I went in this doxology in my backyard. Only a few days later, we would get the news that our son Mark was killed in a car accident. And I look back on that and I think the doxology before the lament. And, and it, was, it was an incredibly painful time. And as I look back on it now, it was like Paul or um, like David does in the early Psalms. Uh, in the beginning of the Psalm, he's always questioning, why, why, why? Why is this happening? Why are my enemies conquering me? Where are you, Lord? Why have you hidden your face from me? But he always ends those Psalms in a doxology. He always ends by praising God. So you're facing this surgery, and then you had the surgery. What, what happened with the surgery? My, my surgeon had said, you know, I think we can do at least two of these surgeries that you're going to need. I think we can do them all at once, maybe even three of them, because of your age. If you're only 32 and going through this, and by the way, most men who go through this are in their 70s, their 80s. He said, but you'll, you'll have a strength, a, a resoluteness that, where you can bounce back. He said, would you like to try to do as many in one operation as possible? And of course, I opted for that. You know, one operation is better than two or three. So the night before the surgery, some friends came over and we had a prayer meeting. And there was one man that I knew in life who did all of life through prayer. His name was R.F. Gates. And there was something very different about him. Now, I knew lots of Christians, wonderful Christian people. But this guy actually lived a constant praying life. And, and, and 
two things I, I noticed about him is he had a lot of joy. And it was a joy that made no sense because he too had a terminal illness. But then also he had a lot of just a kind of energy, kind of a spiritual upbeat sense about him. And we were we were praying. The guys came over. They laid hands on me. They anointed my head with oil. I mean, it was straight out of the book of James. And we had the most wonderful prayer time the night before the surgery. When it was all done, and have you ever been in a prayer meeting where you're just sitting around and everybody's just quiet? Because you're just you're kind of exhausted from prayer, but but there's this great peace. It's a it's unlike anything else in life. Uh, and we were just sitting there, and RF said, "Brother Bob, I've been praying for you, and I I I just want you to know I have a hunch." that we're all going to be amazed. And I thought, no, RF, is that amazingly good or amazingly bad? And that's all he said. And the, the next day, the surgery ended up taking two wonderful surgeons, David Pugh and John Harden, and a host of other people. There were so many people in that waiting room. And, and it, took them, it took both of them nine hours of straight standing and working on me. And, and and what they did was they removed the whole left side of the tongue. So I only have half of a tongue left. And I like to tell people, I've learned since then that half a tongue will get you in just as much trouble as a whole. Oh, for sure, yeah. <laughs> for sure. And the whole left side of the neck is gone. And then they rebuilt the neck and, the, and, and, and part of my mouth with pectoral muscle from my chest area. But I could still swallow, and with the help of a speech therapist, I went about a year in speech therapy and had to learn certain syllables all over again. Uh, so the recovery was very long and slow. But I think what I really learned was, number one, nobody gets around suffering in this life. Uh, you know, and it just, and and as ministers, Chuck, you know, sometimes we can be we can fall into the error of kind of promising if people will do the formulas that we're preaching, they'll, they'll be okay. They'll, you know, but nobody gets around suffering. And then two, what suffering really shows you is how childlike you are before your heavenly father, how dependent you are. And that's something I think you can only learn through suffering in life. I mean, you can read it in a book, you can read it in, in the Gospels, but I don't think you really own it until you really are put in a place of absolute dependence. You said that after your surgery, and I think you're, you're alluding to this, that after your surgery, you experienced the worst year of your life. Can you, can you tell us about that? Why was it the worst year? Um, I think part of it was that I was disfigured. And another part of it was that I had to learn to speak. And so my speech was not clear at all. My articulation was really hard for me. So if I went into a restaurant, I was so self-conscious that I ordered what I thought I could say, not what I wanted. And I would look up at the waiter or the waitress just to see if they could tell that my, my speech impediment 
was pronounced as, as much as it was. In other words, I tried to fake my way through it. And uh, now people are wonderful. They're wonderfully nice to you when you have a disability. That's what, another thing I learned. But it was living in that constant sense of humiliation that actually gave me a sense of humility. And I really believe I could not have learned that in reading a book or hearing sermons or even preaching them. I think it was actually a, a gift. And so in a, in a way, it was the worst year of my life. Everything was uncertain. It was one day at a time. I had to leave the ministry because I really could not preach. I ended up losing the job I loved and getting assigned to another job. And I really struggled with how to do that job well. Then Helen and I learned that she was expecting in all of this. And I got to the point where I said, you know, life just goes badly for me. You watch, we're going to lose the child. And we did to miscarriage on July the 4th of 1990. And, you know, I just got to where I just really expected Others would live in God's blessing, but I would not. And, uh, you, you know, it really was a sense of, I really believed in my heart, God didn't like me very much. I, I would never say that publicly, but in my heart, you know, I said, how could you surmise anything else? Uh, it, sounds, it sounds to me as though you got to a place where the darkness was so dark that you expected it to get darker. Is that accurate? That is accurate, even though I could not imagine a darker darkness. Mm. Well, we like to speak here at Mark Inc. Ministries of treasures that we discover in darkness and treasures that we discover, in fact, only in darkness. Can you describe some of those that you received in that period of darkness, that worst year of your life? Yes, I think there were several, Chuck, and I think one of them was uh, just number one, how uh, how much I am just a dependent child of our Father. That was just a huge lesson for me, because we live in a culture and in a world where everything is about being independent, being great. You know, in Mark 9, even the disciples are discussing who's going to be the greatest in this whole new thing. And when Jesus walks up and asks them, what are you guys talking about? They get really quiet, and the way Jesus responds is he puts a child in front of them, <laughs> and he, as if to say, this is what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for greatness, achievement, uh, success. I'm looking for your dependence upon me, and that's because that's how I live with my Heavenly Father. And I want you to live your life the way I live my life, in absolute dependence. So that was treasure number one. And that really takes a lot of pressure off, you know. It's a real gift from the Lord. I think, secondly, uh, I got a calling out of it. I, I actually get to go and share with people that they can do all of life through prayer. And that prayerlessness is a problem we all have, so don't feel bad about it. But the key is learning how to be a child of your father. And uh, like, like you shared at the intro, I've gotten to do it over 100 times. I quit counting, but it's been tens of thousands of people. And I, I, I guess what you could say is, for some reason, our father wanted a guy with half a tongue and a weird laugh <laughs> to, to go out and tell people 
that, hey, your father would love to hear from you. You do not have to do the Christian life or life itself alone. You can do it through prayer. So that's treasure number two, a sense of calling. And then I think something that you really get in in suffering, I've heard a lot of people with cancer speak to this, and perhaps you can too in the loss of your son, but it's a joy and a pleasure in the small things that God gives you. Uh, it can sound silly, but just pleasure watching a sunset, pleasure enjoying a meal, pleasure in enjoying a conversation with a friend, just things I always took for granted that I just think, I just see now as gifts from the Father's heart. You know, there was a passage in Scripture I was, I was studying the other day, and it's when the mother of James and John approached Jesus. She approaches Jesus, and she asks that her sons be in positions of, well, I'll call it superiority, when Christ comes into his kingdom. And she wants one son to be on his right, one son to be on his left. And I can't help but think what she must have been thinking when Jesus was hanging on the cross with a thief on his right and a thief on his left, and wondering to herself, this is what I asked him to do for my sons, to be on his left and on his right. And when Jesus talks about picking up a cross and following after him, when he talks about the guarantee of suffering, that, as you said earlier, you can't really experience that kind of intimacy with God apart from suffering. And, and you, mentioned, you mentioned a doing life in prayer. What, what do you mean when you say that? What, what exactly are you driving at? Tim Keller says, and I think he's right, that prayerlessness is at an all-time high. And what happens is we, we try to do prayer right, we try to do it better, we try to do it more, and our minds wander, or we fall asleep, or we, it just goes badly. And we get so frustrated deep inside with prayer that we just quit. We, we just quit praying. Even Christians go through life without ever really connecting prayerfully with their Father. Pastors do it all the time. And so what we do is we end up doing life out of a sense of our spiritual gifts, what we're good at, our core areas of competencies. We have a tendency to just put in front of people what we want them to see, which is our successes and our achievements. And all the while, we're living a, a prayerless, disconnected Christian life. And what can happen then is a quiet unbelief can take over in the heart. And it's just a rough place to be. You're living like an orphan. And it was, and it's a place that the Father never intended for you or me to be. You cannot do your life alone. You just cannot do it. And so what, what I'm saying, when I say doing all of life through prayer, I mean, you're just, you're praying constantly. Yes, you're having your morning prayer time. That's great. But you're praying throughout the day. You're constantly calling on your Father, constantly calling on the Spirit for help. But then with your eyes wide open, you're watching for a story to develop in each prayer. So it's a way of, uh, we, we, we call that entering prayer stories and tracking what happens. And what's neat about that is it leads to a change of heart as well as a change of situations. And ultimately, 
it leads to a much more uh, genuine and robust worship in your heart and in your walk with the Father. So that's a long answer, but that's that's it in a as much of a nutshell as I could put it. I'm I'm thinking about that person right now, Bob, who who hears this and maybe they are going through a serious bout of depression. In fact, fresh on my mind right now is is a woman that my wife is going to be talking to in just a few minutes uh, who is battling a real severe case of depression. But when you sit down and you go through the pie of her life, the various things that are going on in her life, everything checks out. She's in ministry. She's a good mother. She's a good wife. She's a hard worker. She's a good churchman. And, and right through the pie of her life, everything is going well. But something is missing. Something is just not right. And she is so miserably unhappy right now. And, and I'm thinking about her listening to this interview of what you have had to endure and the darkness with which you've had to endure it, the lessons you have learned. And she might be saying, you know what, Bob, I'm glad that worked for you. But I cannot see, I don't have that kind of faith that you're talking about. And my prayer life is, is about as bad as one can get because I'm angry with God. I'm angry that things aren't going better. So she's sitting there across the desk from you, Bob. What are you going to say to her? Mm, I'm so glad that um, she's actually saying I'm angry, because that is the prayer of lament. You know what we have found in a praying life is we actually have to go teach people to pray the prayer of lament. Otherwise, the heart just shuts down. And when you go to God with your anger and your sadness, you're actually coming to him with the honesty of your heart, and you're crying out for help. And your father loves that. It's really showing that you have a lot more faith than you realize. A lack of faith would be shutting down and just pulling out altogether. But, but a vibrant faith moves toward God, even in the anger and the sadness and the depression. And it's sharing the heart. But then ultimately, it's asking, it's answering this question that Jesus constantly put in people. What do you want me to do for you? And I think it's just so important that we say, Lord, I want my joy back. Lord, I feel like I'm in a desert and I'm all alone. And it's driving me nuts. Lord, I just, I need a sense of your presence again. I feel like I'm doing things right. And it's, but I just feel so dead inside. So those are the kind of things that I would encourage someone to pray. Uh, Honesty in your lament, share your heart. Don't stop praying, even though you're going to be tempted to. Uh, In the the Praying Life Seminar, we call this praying through the fog of war. Uh, you, You know, and von Clausewitz, the German who wrote about battle, and he said one of the first things that happens when you enter a battlefield, an active battlefield, is a smoke comes over the whole field. And sensorily, you lose perspective on where your line is, where the enemy line is. Uh, There are all these noises. There are these sensations. And you're there, you're present, but you have no idea what's going on. It's there that you're going to be tempted to just shut down the heart in prayer. And what we say is, it won't feel natural, but pray anyway. Shake your fist if you have to. 
pour your tears out if you have to. Be honest before your father and ask him to meet you in this place of great darkness, of battle, of suffering. And then keep this in mind. The story isn't over yet. Uh, Give him space. Give him time. And let's see what happens. You know, it's interesting that you share this story. How, How long ago... How long ago did all this happen to you? It happened 28 years ago. I'm now 60 years old. Yeah, I had no idea I'd live this long. It's just, it's amazing. (laughs) When you go back into that painful time and you uh, maybe speak to the listener who maybe is not experiencing the same kind of physical loss that you experienced, but feels like he or she is in the worst period of their lives. Are there steps that they can take to help them move toward healing, or if no healing is in sight, how can they find purpose and peace in their, whatever their circumstances are? Yes, Chuck, I'm glad you made that distinction between seemingly there's no healing in sight and really being told there's no healing in sight. Because uh, there's a difference. And, 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 and for me, I just assume the disease is going to come back and take my life and, and it'll be my translation into glory or some other disease or an accident, whatever it is. I mean, nobody gets around it. And and that's one thing to face. And in that, if that's the case, I would still pray for healing, but I would also pray for healing of soul, for courage, for strength, for faith to die well. You know, there's such a thing as dying grace that God gives, and it's a sense of peace. When, when the time comes, there really is a sense of Okay, I'm ready. I'm 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 going into uh, to my place in the next life, and my whole life was a preparation for this moment. But then on the other side, there's that sense of darkness and the unknown, and you don't know if there's going to be healing or not, and that can mess with your head as much as anything. And I would just say, still keep praying for healing but also pray for a connection with God's presence. Pray for the reality of Jesus. Pray to abide in Christ. Pray for more faith. Pray for peace that passes understanding and for patience. I love the way Jesus put it in the farewell discourse of John 14, 15, and 16. And as you'll remember, he's giving his final briefing to the the disciples and he says, okay, I'm going to leave you. I'm going to die, but you're going to be okay. In fact, I'm going to send my spirit. He's going to fill you, lead you, and remind you what I taught you. And your life is actually going to be more fruitful than mine was. I mean, you know, he makes this, these amazing promises. And then he says over six times, you need to ask of me. So six times in one sermon, he says, ask of me, ask whatever you will, ask without sense of limit. And one of the things he promises, if you'll be honest and constant in your asking of him, be real alive in it. One of the things he promises is, he says in John 15, I will give you my joy. Your joy will be made full. I will give you my very joy. And that's not necessarily a giddiness, but there is an anticipation of being in the fullness of the Father, no matter what. 
So, I mean, I think we can bank on that promise. He really is going to be with us. He's going to see us through. We just have to be very honest with our hearts and very deliberate in how we connect with him. We had the privilege of interviewing your boss, and the Millers are just fantastic people. And one of the things they regularly return to is what you mentioned just a few minutes ago, the prayer of lament. Can you elaborate on that from your perspective, what that prayer of lament would look like? The Psalms are just full of lament prayers. And basically what it is, is uh, it's how you react when you have a wonderful promise from your father, but the data of real life just doesn't square with that promise. So hope is high because of the word of God, but life is falling apart. It's just not making any sense. And so the prayer of lament is simply this. It's saying, Father, thank you for this promise, but I'm not seeing any of it. What's wrong? Where are you? Lord, now would be a great time to show up. And I'm just, as you can tell, I'm paraphrasing some of the Psalms. Lord, how long am I going to look at the back of your head? Which is another way of saying, are you asleep at the wheel? Are you unaware of this? Come on. Come on. You said you would be here. Where are you? But then while praying that very honest praying, knowing that your father actually delights in it, he accepts it, he appreciates it because it's coming from your heart. But at the same time, you're moving toward him in faith. And what does that look like? It's, it's doggone it. I don't feel up to it, but I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to go to the assembly of the Christians. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to hear the preaching. I'm going to seek out the scriptures. Darn it. I don't want to, but I'm going to do it. And I'm going to be faithful with my gifts, my heart, my soul. And as you mentioned, Chuck, already, in, in almost all of the Psalms of Lament, they end up with a sense of worship. And it's, he's poured his heart out to God. He has declared he's going to be faithful. And then he finds himself worshiping the Father no matter what. And I think that's the prayer of lament that we have to keep in mind. Well, Bob, I want to thank you for sharing your story. It's an incredible story. And when we share stories like this, we really are thinking about the person who might just be starting out on some sort of difficult journey or someone who is maybe tired of the battle and is stuck in bitterness or grief or anger or disappointment. Well, it's our hope that Bob's story will encourage you that there is help and there is hope. Now, Bob is further along in life's journey, and he really is, by way of this, this uh, resource, he is calling back that God is sovereign and you can trust him when you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And our team at Marking Ministries, we would count it a privilege to help you to know who that Jesus is, what redemption looks like, and how you can experience his love and his forgiveness. Or you can connect with Bob through the contact information that you find on our website for his ministry. And Bob, just one last word, one more word from you as you think about what you hope to accomplish with this resource. 
what will cause you to look back and say, you know what, I really did use my time wisely with Mark Inc. Ministries to produce this resource because you fill in the blank. I hope there's a sense of resurrection and not just entering into death when it comes to suffering. In other words, you're going through suffering and nobody gets around it. It's a troubled, fallen world, but you're not going through suffering uh, just because God is mean to you. He's actually drawing you into a deeper place with Christ, and he's leading you to a resurrection. And I, I, I guess what I hope all would see and believe, even though they don't feel it at the moment, is that resurrection is coming. This is all leading to something that is truly wonderful. It's a gift from the Father that's that's up ahead. And I hope we'll look forward to that. And if, if that is the case, then this has just been a wonderful time with, with, with you, Chuck, and with, with our listeners. Would you pray right now, Bob, and close our time here together? Would you pray for that one person that's out there right now who maybe is just hanging on by a thread and needs to hear what you just had to say. Would you pray for them? Yes. Oh, Father, in Jesus' name, we come before you admitting up front we cannot do this life you've given us alone. And we have been trying so hard, and it's just not working. Even the Christian life has not been working for us. So, Father, we, we thank you for the words of Jesus. Come to me, all you who are exhausted, and I will give you rest. And so, Father, we thank you for the glory of the gospel, and that the gospel really is the one thing that uh, is exhibited in prayer more than any other. And so, Father, we come to you and we bring those who are walking in such dark darkness and as they cry out to you share their heart declare their dependence upon you that you would give them a peace that passes understanding that deep in their soul deep in their heart they would know that a point of resurrection is coming and lord would you oh would you teach us to pray would you give us faith would you give us more of a sense of yourself would you give us the courage of faith Would you help us to live and die well in your grace? Father, we pray in Jesus' name for all those who walk in darkness. Lord, would you give them light, even now, the gift of just a glimmer of light that says you are there and that you care. In Jesus' name, amen.